Now, we just studied uh, and finished our study in the book of Daniel. Most of you have been here for that. And you noticed at the end of it how well it was a a segue to what we're going to look at the next two weeks, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Unexpectedly, we found in Daniel chapter 12, you know, written 500 BC before that a little bit, but a verse in chapter 12 that said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. Some to everlasting life, but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And therein, tucked in Daniel's writing back in Babylon, one of the final truths he had to teach us was looking forward to the resurrection, that there is life after death. And it does divide out into those who are the righteous, made righteous by faith in God, and those who are the wicked who reject that word. And so that was in Daniel last week, and it sets us up to talk about the cross and resurrection the next few weeks. Really just this week and next Sunday, but tucked in there, we will have a service here on Friday, and we will talk about more so the cross and then get back to the resurrection next Sunday. And those, those ideas are on our minds and on our hearts, and most certainly because this time of year, it always is. And as I was studying 1 Corinthians 15 this week, um, it was early in the week, uh, Monday, where with the tragedy of the shooting in Nashville at Covenant School, that suddenly some of what was on the page as it, early in the week a theological study for me became a very personal one. And it probably did for you. The, hearing the news of a, yet another tragedy, another shooting, puts in front of us a continual and inescapable reality of evil in a sin-cursed world. And the question that comes out of that is, when will it ever end? I mean, Christians aren't the only ones asking that. When will it end? Well, we know where that evil comes from, and we know until Christ returns, it won't end. So what then is our hope? Well, it's what we have today in 1 Corinthians 15, that this hope we have in the resurrection becomes very real when you think about a tragedy like that. As a father of five kids under the age of 10, with two of them elementary age attending school, this was uh, on my mind as heart this week as much as thinking about the resurrection, and it came down to this intersection in my own life this week to think about. If there is no resurrection of body and soul after death, then I nor you nor anyone has hope, ultimately. But if there is a resurrection of body and soul, we have what? An eternal hope, one that will never fade away. And we can all affirm that truth and say amen to it, but it's another thing to hear it on the lips of Chad Scruggs. He's the father of one of the children that died in that shooting Monday. And he's also the pastor of the church, Covenant Presbyterian, connected to that school. And all that I could gather that he had to say on behalf of his family this week was this. We are heartbroken. Speaking of his daughter, she was such a gift. Through tears we trust that she is in the arms of Jesus, who will raise her to life once again. 
the belief that God is able to raise the dead is not just a doctrine then that holds our theology together. It's a hope that holds a broken heart together. That's what the resurrection is for the Christian. Yes, it is at the end of a line of many doctrines that we affirm to be orthodox. To stand in the line from the time of the teaching of Christ to the apostles till now and affirm all of the tenets of a historic orthodox Christian belief. Yes, the resurrection is part of that, but it also has to be something more than that, doesn't it? It has to give you a hope that holds your life together in the worst of times. For Chad and his wife, it's the only hope they have to see their girl again. And it's the only hope many of us have to see loved ones that we have lost again. And if there is no resurrection, if God is not able to raise the dead, then we're without hope. So that's what today's and next week's time will be about in 1 Corinthians 15. God is able to raise the dead. And that line is not found here in 1 Corinthians 15, nor is it found in the teaching of Jesus. I found it in an unexpected place just reading through my Bible this week. Hebrews 11, 17 to 19, a verse that holds the same truth that that pastor is holding on to by another faithful father who had the test of losing his son. Hebrews 11, 17 and 19 says, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac your offspring shall be named. And he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So the earliest act of faith in the Old Testament regarding a hope in the resurrection of the dead goes back to Genesis chapter 22. What's interesting is that it reveals the faith of Abraham. Even when there was no Bible verse for him to cling to, like we have. You know, you ask that question, what, what, what's different and what's the same about the people of faith before Christ and us now? There's quite a few things we know that they didn't know. But the heart of that faith is the same. We believe in a God who can do anything. And in that moment that Abraham was raising a knife to sacrifice his own son because God commanded him to do it, by faith he raised that knife and by faith he dropped it. But in the moment before God stopped him, he believed that God was able to raise the dead because he believed that God would keep his promise that through his line, many would be blessed. Amen. Why I was thinking about that is because I am blown away then how much more hope I should have today with all that I have in the rest of the Word of God. And when it comes to the doctrine of the resurrection, 
what we have to study for the next two weeks is, is the greatest section in Scripture, in one chapter that is, giving us hope in the resurrection, giving us the depths of its truth and the breadth and expanse of it throughout all history. It's unparalleled. And so it's a chapter that I would commend to us today, not just to study today, but to know in our hearts. Because you're going to face a moment where you have to ask yourself, do I have this hope? When tragedy hits, when the loss happens, is my hope in the God who can raise the dead? Follow with me then as I read 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 19 this morning. Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed it in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, We are, of all men, most to be pitied. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, correction, reproof, and training in righteousness so that we today, by learning about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, may be equipped for every good work. Well, let's see today what I just mentioned from 2 Timothy 3.16. How Paul presents the resurrection in these 19 verses does fall into the two categories of both the usefulness and truthfulness of the Scriptures. That God's Word is useful when we talk about the resurrection and God's Word is truthful as we talk about it. So let's start with its truthfulness in verses 1 through 11. And as you heard in verses 1 to 11, there is no doubt in Paul's mind that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Now, he presents his case for the resurrection like a defense attorney for Jesus Christ. And you might be thinking, wait a second. Jesus does not need a defense attorney. 
Well, in the big scheme of things, sure. But in time and space, and back when Paul is writing this letter to the church at Corinth, there were already those, as we read in verse 12, some who are saying there's no resurrection of the dead. There are some resurrection deniers trying to dissuade people from believing that there is life after death and we will be raised. Now, where that came from in Corinth, we're not sure, but we do know by this time there has been a lie spreading about the resurrection of Christ from the very day that Christ rose. Well, where do we get that information? Turn in your Bible to Matthew 28. Now, Matthew writes his gospel a few years uh, after Paul wrote this epistle in 1 Corinthians. But when you put these two things together, Matthew probably wrote his gospel from somewhere between 55 to 60 AD. So, you know, you're talking 30 years after Christ's resurrection where this letter uh, to the Corinthians was written just a bit earlier than that, somewhere 50 to 55. We know that Paul visited Corinth in his second missionary journey, Acts 18. And he's writing back to this church after spending a year and a half with them. And he has to correct a lot of things going bad in this church. One of the reasons why we never will abandon, I mean, it's perish the thought, but why a church will rise and fall on what is taught from its pulpit. As goes the pulpit, so goes the pew. It is because we see in church history, no matter how close it was to the actual life and death and resurrection of Jesus, a good church can go bad very quickly. If what? If it doesn't remember its calling, 1 Timothy 3, to be a pillar and buttress of the truth. So when the church loses its way from the pulpit, it has no hope out in the pew. And so this is what Paul is having to do in writing this letter to the Corinthians, both to correct false living, but also in chapter 15, false teaching. Where did this false teaching come from? There is no resurrection or that Christ didn't rise. We know in Matthew 28, verse 11 to 15, right after the disciples are leaving the tomb and telling everyone that Christ has risen, here comes the lie. Matthew 28, 11. Now while they were on their way, some of the guard, and this is talking about the soldiers, came into the city and reported to the chief priests in Jerusalem all that had happened. So they're saying, hey guys, um, no body. And when they had assembled with the elders, the same elders that were likely responsible for the death of Jesus, and consulted together, the elders gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Pretty amazing to think about that, isn't it? I mean, on the surface, you just see some guys trying to cover their tracks. But what is actually happening there is Satan's last which is the work of the cross was accomplished atonement was finished sin and death were defeated and Christ has not stayed dead so the best move he has to make from the day of the resurrection until today is to lie is to tell people it never actually happened why we don't fool around talking about the enemy as a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Because he wasn't licking his wounds the day that Christ rose. He was already what? 
fast at work deceiving enemies of the gospel into believing that Jesus Christ didn't rise. And so leads these guys to come up with a lie to say the disciples, those disciples that didn't even stick around save Jesus' own mother and a few of her friends and John didn't even stick around to see him die but these guys suddenly three days later have the gusto to knock out a few Roman guards with weapons and move a boulder out of the way and steal a body. That's believable. But that's what the lie that was started. And so when it comes to the truthfulness of the resurrection, from the moment that Sunday Christ rose from the grave, there has been deception. There has been a lie. And, and Matthew says that down in verse 15. The soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story, what story? The story that the disciples stole the body, that Jesus didn't really rise from the grave. This story has been widely spread among the Jews and to this day. Well, if, like this is Matthew inserting his own commentary on what happened that day. But when did he write this? 30 years later. So he's saying 30 years later, after Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 15, they're still lying about the body of Jesus. So here and now is why we have Paul having to defend it. And he starts with a defense, a type of lawyer-like defense, establishing the facts of the case on behalf of the risen Christ. Because he wants to seal in the reader's mind, in the letter to the Corinthians and all who read it after that, that there are facts, historical facts, established by eyewitnesses. And more important than the eyewitnesses, although that helps us quite a bit, in verses 1 to 4, the witness of all witness, the witness of the Word of God, which is more powerful than any human witness. Where do I see the witness of the Word of God? Well, he repeats, the gospel I preached to you in verse 1, the Word I preached to you in verse 2, Christ died according to the Scriptures in verse 3, Christ was buried and raised according to the Scriptures in verse 4. So before there is any witness of people, he wants to say, hey, the greatest witness in this case is God's word. And may that be a good lesson for all of us. That the word of God has the authority when it comes to the power of the gospel as a witness for the truthfulness of the resurrection, far exceeding even your life. It's good to share your testimony. It's awesome. But your testimony has no authority in comparison to the authority of what God has written. And you see Paul establishing that fact. In verse 1, he's saying, brothers, look, your own life. This is kind of the funny part of this. Some of them in the church that are buying into this lie. He says, the gospel which I preach to you, which you receive and which you stand, by which you're saved. Like, how do you explain your own life if you're suddenly going to discard the gospel in the resurrection of Jesus. Like, what do you, what changed you then? If Christ didn't rise, then you didn't rise. And you're still, and he's going to get to this later, you're still an unchanged, moralistic sinner. So your own life, if you think you've been changed by something, is built on the facts of Christ rising from the dead. And if you hold fast, the word, notice it's not plural, the words which I preached, as in Paul is not say, trying to say, hey, it's my words that are magical. He's saying the word, the word, what's the word? 
the word he preached. What's the word he preached? The gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an established fact, the gospel of Jesus Christ, by this point, for these Corinthian believers to believe. And some of them were losing that trust. But it's a good word for us, fundamentally, that we are preaching God's word before we're doing anything else when it comes, even this week, to telling people the good news. The gospel that we have been given handed down, the word that we have been given handed down, and it is a message. Notice it's a word-filled message. It's not just, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Come on now. Then it's not a message. You have to speak up. And that's how these people received it, stood in it, and were saved by it. And that's the same for us. And anybody that messes with it, Galatians 1.9 said, if anyone comes preaching a different gospel, they are to be accursed. Why? Because you don't mess with the word of God. Then he takes it not just to what he was proclaiming from the time of Christ on, but what had already been said according to the scriptures in verse 3 and 4. So as he was going backwards to the time of Christ and when the gospel good news began, he backs it up even further and says, look, according to the scriptures, in, in the Old Testament, Christ was to die for sins and he was to be buried and to be raised on the third day according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? Well, certainly he's talking about the Old Testament. I mean, we even sang this morning Psalm 24, which would, if Jesus on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24 is going back and telling these disciples and showing them all the places that spoke of him, maybe, maybe it was Psalm 24. He's saying, hey guys, you know when I did that triumphal entry, open the gates that the king of glory may come in? That was about me. That, that was for me. Psalm 118, where that was, you know, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of these Christ was pointing to. But for our purposes, Psalm 16 would be in verse 4 that he was going to be raised according to the scriptures because Psalm 16 was part of Peter and Paul's apostolic preaching from the beginning in Acts 2 and Acts 13. They took David's words in Psalm 16 and said, no, this couldn't have been David because his body is still around his body did decompose, and we could find it today. But if you go to Psalm 16 and you read what David wrote a thousand years earlier, this couldn't apply to him. And, and Peter and Paul, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, know it. Listen to Psalm 16, anticipating a, a body of the anointed Messiah that will not decay. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. First sermon after Pentecost, Peter chapter 2. I mean, talk about expositing the Word of God. That's what, exactly what he did. He said, you know that Psalm 16 passage we all know? It's so great because it gives us hope for a future resurrection. That actually was about Jesus whom you killed. Good news, bad news, I guess. And they repented because they realized, wait, we, we did kill the Messiah. It, it, it was us. We, we missed him. And then when Paul preaches going to uh, Pisidian Antioch, not the Antioch in, in Syria, but more in Asia Minor, there were more than one of them. In Acts 13, what's Paul's first sermon there? Doing the same thing. He's going back to Psalm 16 and telling them that the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who fulfills that. So when Paul, now writing to the Corinthians, is saying he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, 
He's, he's going backwards, back even beyond the time of Christ to the time of the Old Testament. And that God's word had called it and predicted it. One other note from verse 3 that it's good for us to see when we go out and, and tell people the good news that we are tying in both the history of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, but also why it matters, the theology behind it. Look at verse 3. It's just a small thing, but it's a good thing. I delivered you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins. Well, you have two things happening right there. You have historical fact. Christ died. But nobody's getting saved just going around telling people Christ died. What was, what was beyond that? What was the purpose of that? The next three words. For our sins. There's the theology of the death of Jesus Christ, the atonement. Right there in that little package that as we think about being faithful evangelists, sharing the gospel with others, we are establishing facts like Jesus Christ did really live and he died and he rose again, but we have to tell them the point of it. What was the meaning behind it? What's the theology of the history? And you put those two things together. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. So first, you have that God's word says it's true. That's the first evidence of the truthfulness of the resurrection. God's word says it's true, and that's the most powerful witness there is. However, Paul does move from the truth of the preached word of God to the witness of the people of God, and that's summarized in 5 through 11, both in a, if you want to use these categories for these verses, a quality of witness and a quantity. Let's talk about the quality of it. Because I guess if I was a lawyer, I would probably start with the quality of witness before all the jury gets bored. Uh, I'm not going to maybe hold back the super witness to the end. So Paul calls to the reader's attention the highest quality of witness, verse 5, those most known and respected in the early church, Peter and the twelve. Why, are, why do we say they're so respected and known? Because he doesn't have to name the twelve. He just says the twelve, the twelve that Jesus commissioned to go to the ends of the earth preaching the gospel. Peter and the 12, that's my first witness. So there is a qualitative value to who he wants to reference in verse 5. But then he moves on to a quantity of witnesses in verse 6. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And I think I mentioned this back when we were talking about the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. That's not the same moment of Acts chapter 1 when Jesus does ascend to heaven. It's a moment likely up in Galilee where Jesus said, I would meet you. And we know the primary place of Jesus' teaching ministry for those three years was up around Galilee. So perhaps that Great Commission moment, because there was more than just the 12 there, uh, could have been this moment that more than 500 saw him all at the same time. Now he does mention some have died but most of them are still alive. Why? Because when Peter write, or Paul writes this, it's only 20 or so years after the resurrection. So he's establishing the quality of witnesses, the quantity of witnesses. He mentions Jesus' half-brother James. He mentions other apostles. And last of all, he mentions himself. And so in summation fashion, he is just trying to say, look, the reason we can believe is not only because the word of God establishes his death and resurrection because of eyewitnesses. We saw it with our own eyes, and that's emphasized when he repeats the word, he appeared four times. Look at it in verse five, he appeared. Verse six, after that, he appeared. Verse seven, and then he appeared. Verse eight, and last of all, he appeared to me. What's he simply trying to say? We saw him with our own two eyes. 
That made me think about um, a couple years ago when we did the 45-year anniversary of our church, the celebration we had. And, um, you know, I'm kind of a noob. And so um, I thought it'd be cool to tell the story of how this church uh, was started, you know, how it was planted, if you will, where it began. So I tried to start at the beginning. And I just talked to those who... um, you know, I probably started talking to Woody Buchanan and just said, hey, Woody, you know, tell me about the beginning. Who else would have been there? And then I was able to get back to the roots of the house that it first started in, the first meeting, even some pictures from that time, 1976. And it ended up, I probably interviewed for this video around a dozen people, all telling me about something that happened from their perspective 40 years later, 45 years later. So just put those things on the scale. What's more credible? 500 plus witnesses 25 years later, all saying they saw the same thing and heard the same person? Or, you know, wonderful people like the Sherrills, but only about 12 of them talking about something 40 years later. Believe one, but not the other. And so we put that video together and we showed it that night and it was a wonderful event. And here's the interesting thing. 400 people attended that event and there were were people that were new to the church, but there were some people that came back that were there at the beginning and nobody started a, a big commotion in the middle of the video saying, that's not what happened. Maybe if it was a Baptist church, that would have been, you know, the, the downfall of it. Ah, this is all, it's all a hoax. No. Everybody just sat there and said, that, that's it. We believe the witnesses. They were there. I wasn't there. I wasn't born. But we were able to video them and, and put all the story together and say, it adds up. The dates add up. The person that preached adds up. The first message added up. How much of your life is built on the same simple, uh, just talking about the human level of this thing, you believe based on what? The account of someone else that said they were somewhere, wrote it down, saw it with their own two eyes. Now, I guess to our advantage today, we live half of our life videoing everything we do so that we can not only tell somebody we saw LeBron make his shot that vaulted him into the all-time leading scorer, but when you saw the picture, every single person in the audience had their phone out except for Nike's CEO because he was just taking it in. But... That, that's what we're dealing with here is, is the, the, the factual evidence, the truthfulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Paul lays out a case that would be hard to be overturned in any court of law today. But here's the reality. Yes, it's truthful, but then we have to ask, is it useful? You give us all the facts, Paul, but... Um, If you take it away, what's been lost? And that's his argument from verses 12 to 19. And now he's going to say, hey, I'm not just going to tell you about the truthfulness of this thing. I want you to see how useful the resurrection is. And so he does it by arguing from the negative. Verse 13, if there is no resurrection, then let me tell you, if there's no resurrection of the dead, and and so Christ hasn't been raised, then let let me explain to you in the next few verses 
all the things that fall apart to prove to you how useful, beneficial, and profitable the resurrection of the dead actually is. So the first thing he mentions, his first uh, line of persuasion for not just the truthfulness of it, but the usefulness of the resurrection is that if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's futile. It's foolish. It's the word vain that just talks about something that is vanishing, something that's disappearing, something that is going to be here today and gone tomorrow, as in our preaching is empty. So I stand up here and think if the resurrection isn't true, I have a really pointless message today. And don't tell me that you think that more often than just today. But I really do have a pointless, let alone a powerless message. My message is completely in vain. And I am wasting my breath talking about it. But don't feel too bad for me because your faith is in vain. And I'm at least getting paid. But think of your time and money week after week after week being wasted if Christ wasn't raised. What a waste for you all. I mean, I still, I mean, I could ride this thing as long as I can. My preaching's in vain, but your faith is in vain. So we're all committed to a pointless endeavor, aren't we? A vain endeavor, a a futile, foolish, empty endeavor if Christ is. That's the first argument from the negative that Paul has. If there's no resurrection, there's nothing to this. This is, this is the most hollow, it's, it's not even shallow. It's the most hollow, empty thing that can occupy your life being in here today. And there's a lot of hollow and empty and shallow things out there, aren't there? But this, of all of them, is absolute rock bottom if there's no resurrection. Not only that, moreover, verse 15, we're found to be false witnesses of God. So he moves from the foolish and the futile to the heretical. At best, I'm an ignorant liar telling you this stuff, but at worst, I am a guilty heretic. Notice what he mentions. A false witness testifying against God to do something that God didn't actually do. So, Paul the Pharisee, he knew what would happen if what? You're a false witness. You get stoned. What was he trying to do when Christ saved him? He was trying to go around and kill Christians because he thought they were false witnesses. So he gets the weight of this. That if there is no resurrected Christ, he's guilty of the thing he was out there trying to kill people for. Blasphemy. Heresy. Attributing to God raising his son from the dead when it didn't happen. But it gets, I guess, I mean, it does get worse. He keeps going. It's not just that we're liars or heretics if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Because verse 16, he says, look, again, back to this dead not being raised. If there's no resurrection, then then Christ hasn't been raised. 
So then he picks back up on what he left off on back in verse 14. In 17, if Christ has not been raised, he ups the ante. Your faith is not just vain or futile or empty or hollow. Your faith is worthless. And there gets us to our word today. It's another word for useless. It's useless, your faith. But he follows it up to tell you why it's worthless or useless. Because... Your faith is built upon you taking God at his word that your sins have been forgiven by Christ at the cross. And Romans 4 says he was raised for our justification. He didn't just die for it. He was raised to prove that the power of sin and death was broken. So why is your faith not just vain with vain preaching? Your faith is worthless because you are still in your sins. And this is a real mind blower because then this makes Christ's words on the cross utterly meaningless. That if we're still in our sins, then his last words or second to last words, it is finished. Father, do you, I commit my spirit. It is finished means that it wasn't finished. You know what? He's what everybody said he was. Some, and we saw this when we went through Mark. They said he was a madman. They said he was demon-possessed. And he would have been delusional right to his final breath thinking that he was accomplishing salvation and that the work of atonement was finished if he doesn't rise from the dead. He was the liar or he was the lunatic. But he wasn't the Lord if Christ was not raised. And so we're still in our sins. And so is everyone else. Verse 18, everyone else who has died in Christ, who said they're a follower of Jesus, if there is no resurrection for them, they've perished forever. And so he, he takes the summation of this whole thing. He stacks it all up. He adds it all up from the negative argument. If, then, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, if Christ has not been raised, then here's the net result. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pity that's his final conclusion on the matter that we are a pitiable people now not having been raised in the south there is a certain type of faux pity that you hear when somebody says oh bless your heart listen I don't catch on to too many things too quickly but I know what you're saying to me when you're saying oh bless your heart That's not this type of pity. This idea of pity here, the, the word, it means a person in a truly miserable state of existence. You know, bless your heart, pity is, oh, you knucklehead. No, this is the type of, you're most to be pitied because you are in a wretched condition that has no way out. And you've seen that haven't you? You've, you've been around some people in some hard places. Maybe you've been overseas and you've gone to a country where you see people in a miserable condition and, and you're broken because you go, I, I can't fix this. This level of poverty, this level of helplessness and hopelessness in this economy of this country or this person's state, it's truly pitiable and you have an empathy for them out of true they've got no hope and that's where Paul ends his argument 
He just says, look, if, if there is no resurrection, then we, we have no hope. We are to be pitied. There is no savior. There is no good news. There was, because there is no forgiveness of sin. Because there is no victory over sin and death. There's nothing. We've got nothing. So I ask you this morning. Is the truthfulness and usefulness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ a big deal? It's either the deal breaker or the deal maker, isn't it? I mean, it's not the only doctrine that we affirm, but it comes at the very end of them all, doesn't it? And they all build up to this crescendo, this moment, that if this one goes away, what does it make of all of the other things we believe? Things that we would say we believe about the character of God. Oh, he's, he's loving and he's just and he's merciful and he's good and he's... Ra- but if Christ hasn't been raised, all of those wonderful things that we could say about God and even admire about the life of Jesus, Paul is blunt. Pity us if it's only for this life only. Feel bad for us miserable Christians. Because we put all our eggs in a basket that has a hole in the bottom. I remember growing up in church hearing a guy preach something around this. Um, not maybe this section, but he was, he was preaching something about, you know, what matters for this life versus the next. And, and he said something along the lines of, you know, if, I, if, if we die and, and we, you know, come to find out that we, um, you know, there is no resurrection and we're not in heaven and we believe the wrong thing, we got the wrong religion, you know, if, if that's the case, you know, we, we still at least lived a good life, right? We did the right thing and that's worth it. Christianity is worth it if we just lived a good life. I don't know how old I was, but I remember sitting there thinking, I don't, I don't know if that adds up because I'm pretty sure that um, just trying to live a good life isn't the point of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There, there has to be something beyond that because then we're just like every other person attempting to be moral on their own who comes to find out in the great beyond whether they had enough goodness to add up. But see, if you don't have the resurrection, which is the end point of all those other things we believe, everything else leads up to this moment, then it starts putting cracks in the whole system, right? Because if Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life, and if you tear this temple down in three days, I'll raise it up again, or just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days and, and was out, so the son of man, if, if that's out, then he's, him being the son of God's out, and how else are we to find our way to God without him? So it all goes for me. Eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow we die. Because you could say, well, it's still good to be moral and ethical. Who's to say what morals then? Because that God who gave me all these morals has a big part of this book torn out. And all that I would want to do to please him hangs on it. So I don't know where I would be. Like Peter's response to Christ. You have the words of eternal life. Where where would we go without you, Christ? Where would we go? But it all goes back to the resurrection in Paul's mind. If we lose this, throw it all away. But because we don't lose it, and the resurrection is true, we have the best news in the world. 
We have the most truthful message to give people and the most useful. And it's useful because it gives people true hope. The only hope that pastor in Tennessee has. Talk about a useful belief. The only hope he has to see his daughter again is built on his belief in the resurrection. That's it. The only hope any of us have to see someone we've lost that love the Lord and that we love to see them again is built on what? The resurrection. All the other good, warm, fuzzy feelings, things we want to say about the afterlife don't matter. It's what God said about it because his son came from heaven and he lived a perfect life I couldn't live and he died the death I deserved to die but he didn't stay dead. He defeated sin in the grave. I couldn't have done it no matter how good I could have tried to live my life. And so I put all my hope in him and so my question for you today is all your hope in him. That's what the question comes down to today. When you consider the facts of the resurrection, that Jesus rose again, and you're hearing the gospel today because of it, do you actually believe it? Do you believe it unto eternal life? Jesus says, an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil to a resurrection of judgment. What's, what do you have to do to get in? Do you have to do all the good deeds? Do you have to be the perfect person? No, you can't. He says, truly, truly, I say to you in verse 24 of John 5, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. John 6, 40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And here's the promise Jesus makes you today. If you're dead in your sins, if you're not in Christ, and that's the worst place to be. But here's his promise to you. If you behold him, the Son of God, and his work for you on the cross, and his resurrection, if you believe in him, he says, I myself will raise you up on the last day. You know, he makes a personal promise to you. This Jesus whom you've never seen. And you never will see until that day. That if you put your faith in him today, he'll be the per first person you see in that day. The first time you lay your eyes on Christ, it will be him raising you up. What greater hope is there than that? What greater message do we have to give to people who are hurting and broken and without hope in this world? That as far as you might be from God today, if you trust in Jesus Christ, He Himself will raise you up. What a Savior. So I pray we all go out of here this week as this We've learned today with, with, a, with a trust in the truthfulness of what we have read, but that we see also people want something that has hope.
that's useful, that's good, that's beautiful, that's not just true. There is, if you talk to people who are evangelists and apologists, people that defend the faith, guys like Josh McDowell, you might have seen or heard him preach or his book read it, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and it's been around since I was in my middle school years. It probably wrote it long before that. And, and when I was growing up, you know, to, to be a witness for Jesus Christ and to go around and tell my friends about Jesus and to have that book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or More Than a Carpenter was the thing version, you had to be a good apologist who knew how to answer one question. Is what I'm saying true? And if you ask these same guys today, 30, 40 years later, is that the only thing people want answered? They'll say no. Even though people haven't changed, the times have. And what they care about, truth has changed. They're still sinners. They're still lost. They're still dead in their sins and trespasses. Their hearts are still desperately wicked. Man doesn't change. But the air we breathe in the culture today has a question that matters just as much about, is it true? This generation wants to know, is it good? They want to know that. You can tell them all the truthfulness and give them all the evidence you want, but they're going to look back at you and say, truth, what's truth? Because they've been taught since the time they were little. Truth is relative. Tell me something good. Tell me something beautiful. Not just something true. That's been asked since the ages. Plato, Socrates, Aristotle. The truth, goodness, and beauty, philosophy. They were out there always trying to find it. And it was right in front of them just like it is with us, with God. There's nothing more true than Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection for sinners. And there's nothing more good. And you put those two things together and you get the most beautiful message out there. That we undeserving sinners can be saved and given eternal life. So when you go out this week, and especially the young generation, Gen Z, who is thinking with their feelings, who is saying, do I like it? Not is it true, do I like it? How do you appeal to that kind of value? You have to show them that it's good. That it gives you a hope. And that it's true. And I pray that the time we spend in this text today and then Friday and next Sunday only builds that deeper into our hearts. We're going to take communion in just a moment commemorating the atoning work of Christ for us. Pray with me and then um, some of the ushers, if you forgot to grab one of these on the way in, sometimes we do that. Uh, they all have a handful of them. So when I'm done praying, just raise your hand and then they'll bring it down to you and then we'll take communion together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for its truthfulness. Lord, there is nothing more beautiful and good than Jesus Christ. There's none like him. And his person and his work that we look at we are blown away by because we see in ourselves that we're not righteous, but he gives his righteousness to us. And so as we come to communion this morning, as we think upon the wonderful truths that we have just seen today about the resurrection, help us to think forward also this week to Friday. And Lord, what preceded that was Jesus with his disciples in that upper room and him leaving for them something to commemorate, but it's also something to celebrate the promise of his righteousness for our unrighteousness. That great exchange. So may our hearts be prepared now to
to draw close to you, Father, through your Son and your Spirit. We ask in his name. Amen. Well, we're in Corinthians, so just turn a few chapters backwards for our meditation on the Lord's Supper today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, uh, Paul had left um, a word for the church on how to properly observe the Lord's Supper. 20 years after Christ leaves that Thursday night celebrating the Passover with his disciples, they passed on and Paul received it. He says that in verse 23, what he's now delivering to the church. And he's saying there is a proper way to observe the Lord's table. I mean, he just kind of gets through in the verses preceding. Just don't rush into this thing. Don't make it all about the food, this, this feast, and you're not even caring about the people around you. But then he really zeroes. After he's, he gets that instruction out of the way, he said, listen, the, the, here's the height of it. You've been invited to the table of the Lord. You, you're in God's family. And he wants you to ask yourself this morning, how did you get in? How'd you get into God's family? How'd you get invited to his dinner? How are you getting a seat at the table? Examine your heart. Is it because you did something to earn the invitation? Well, the answer is in verse 24 when Jesus says, this is my body, which is for you. So the first way we get in is what? Substitution. We didn't have a place at his table. We had a place waiting for us in hell. But by Christ giving his body to be broken for us on the cross, by him who knew no sin becoming righteousness on our behalf, we become the righteousness of God. So when I look at my invitation, I I first see that this is my body, Adam, which is for you. Do that in remembrance of me. Remember that I stood in your place. Your death, I took. My life, now it's yours. But it gets even better. Because there's this law, this old covenant, that basically the summary of it is this. Be perfect as I am perfect. You want to eat at God's table? You want to be invited into his house and have forever fellowship with him? Oh yeah, just one, one, one way you get into his place. One way you get a reservation. Be perfect. That's what the law demanded. That's what Christ said. Matthew 5, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. I'm out. How about you? So to take the cup in a worthy manner today is to say, look, I get in because Christ brought me in. His body was broken for me. And then Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And and when you drink it, remember me. Remember our sin? Of course, remember our sin. Just like we saw in 1 Corinthians 15.3. He died for our sin. But the moment I remember my sin in this moment, I remember my Savior. His body broken for me. His blood poured out for me. I come by no merit of my own. So I hope you don't think when we observe communion that it's clean yourself up time. If that were the case, we don't need a Savior. We just have to work harder. Coming and observing communion in the right way is to say, look, I I get my sin and I need to look at my life and examine it. But the moment I see it, I have to see through that to the cross. That Christ died for me. So take the bread, verse 24. 
when he broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way he took the cup also after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant. The old covenant's gone. You're not working your way to God. You never could and you never would. So drink of my blood and often as you drink of it, remember the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world on our behalf so that we can be forgiven. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can proclaim your death, both the the symbolic nature of your body being broken for us and your blood being poured out for our sins so that we can for just a glimpse, just a moment this morning in the fellowship and communion we enjoy with you through your son. Just for a moment, we could see ourselves. That as sinful as we are, yet we're justified. Which means that we could see ourselves as if we have kept every law that ever was. We could see ourselves just for this moment as if we have loved you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, even though we know we haven't. Because we're in Christ and he is in us, we can, by faith, see it. So help us to see our Savior. There's no one more precious, no one more good, no one more beautiful than you, Lord. It's in your name we pray, amen.